encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Uh, I remember as a young child going on family vacations, and one family vacation sticks out in my mind in particular. We, we drove um, to the East Coast. It was in the mid-90s, and I remember uh, very vividly as a young child, we had the opportunity to go to PEI, and we took the ferry over, and it was during the time where they were building the Confederation Bridge. And we could see kind of the initial structure taking place. We could see a lot of the construction going on. And I remember being fascinated, even as a young child, looking at this bridge being constructed. It's almost 13 kilometers long. And I had a hard time in my mind processing how we were going to build, how they were going to build a bridge that was connecting these two uh, seemingly just so distant pieces of land. It's fascinating how bridges can be built, isn't it? How what seems so far apart can be connected over time. And it took four years to finish that bridge and $1.3 billion. But I think looking back now, most people who have taken that bridge believe that it was well worth the cost and the time. You know, we're in the middle of our series, Breaking Through the Barriers, wanting to see the gospel continue to move forward in power. And last week, we saw very clearly that we are a people who are called to wield the weapon of God's word. As we are breaking through barriers, we carry God's word. It is our primary weapon to crush the barriers, to crash through the barriers. But one of the things we need to understand is that God calls us not simply to be soldiers who are wielding the weapon of his word. He calls us actually to be bridge builders, to be seeking to connect what seems to be so far apart, people who are so distant from God, who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and one of the requirements of every Christian is to be a strategic and intentional bridge builder. And I think as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the things we see is that here is a man who was wielding God's word, but who was also building bridges effectively. As Christians, I am convinced that we cannot sit around and wait for the world to build bridges to us. We must be intentional about building bridges to them so that we can bring to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle, in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, really gives us a blueprint for how to build bridges into the world. And this is really, really important because Paul is moving beyond the Jewish communities. And he's moving into the very secular pagan communities. And so there's a slightly different approach that he models for us that we can, I think, really grow from. And so as we seek to build bridges, I, I must first do this, I must create the opportunities. It's essential for building bridges, we must create the opportunities. Notice with me verse 16, let's read it together. Paul says, or Luke writes this, he says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul demonstrates for us that if we're gonna build bridges with the gospel of Jesus Christ into the surrounding culture, that we need to actually be the ones who are generating or creating the opportunities. If you think of the analogy or the metaphor of building bridges, I want you to see this, creating the opportunities as that initial first phase. This is where we go and we survey the land. We determine whether or not or where we're gonna be able to build the bridge. Is this gonna be the right ground right here? Verse 16 tells us that Paul was waiting for his friends. Remember Paul and Silas, he had been run out of Berea, the Jews chasing him for preaching the gospel. And he lands now in Athens. Athens is a famous city, but right now in the first century, it's 500 years past its golden age. In fact, an author, a writer who visited Athens 50 years after the Apostle Paul, in this moment right here, he said this, that it was easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than it was to meet a man or a woman. It's fascinating because Paul says that he looks around him and he sees that the city is full of idols and statistically speaking, this is an incredibly true statement. You see, the population of the city was around 30,000 and by secular accounts and records that we have, it appears that there was at the very least in Athens no less than 73,000 idols lining the streets. You just think about that. So many more idols than there were people. Statues of gods all over the place, divinities that were being worshiped. The streets are lined with idols of these false deities, framed, by the way, by the architectural magnificence of Athens, the Parthenon and the Acropolis. It was a stunning picture to see. It was absolutely amazing, but what we need to see is that what people generally, listen, think as beautiful, these sculptures that were carved with such intricacy and care, Paul saw not as beautiful, but as a betrayal. The word of God tells us that his spirit was provoked within him. And I want you to see this, if you wanna create opportunities, here's the first thing we need to learn from Paul, you need to be irritated by idolatry. He looks at the world and the forms of worship to these false gods and he becomes deeply agitated. The word provoked means to become angered or deeply irritated internally. His soul is beginning to seethe as he looks at the worship of these false gods. You say, why? Why was this so irritating? Why was he so angered by what he saw? I think at least three reasons. The first is this, as a faithful Jew who knew, who knew the Old Testament, he understood that every idol was ultimately an affront to the true and living God. He knew that every single idol was an attempt to worship a lesser being, and in most cases, a demonic being posing as a God worthy of worship and praise. He understood what the Old Testament said. I can imagine that Paul, listen, as a rabbi so versed in the scripture, was all of a sudden, as he looked around this pagan culture with all of the idolatry, all of these scriptures began flooding to his mind, and maybe at the forefront was Isaiah 42, verse eight, that says this, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I think secondly, he was so irritated 
internally because he saw before him a display of distorted purpose for humanity. He saw what God had designed as beautiful, the idea of worship of the true and living God, and he saw the the distorted nature of false worship, of worshiping what is not truly God. And thirdly, I think he was so irritated because he understood that this would lead to incredible consequences for these individuals. This is the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter one, remember? Where he attacks just head on the concept of idolatry in the culture, the, the spiraling out of control of the depravity of sinful humanity. And ultimately, it led to one devastating place facing, encountering the very wrath of God. You see, he was irritated by idolatry because he understood and was deeply burdened. This is so key. He wasn't sinfully angry, church. Listen, he was deeply burdened by the brokenness of the world around him. Sometimes in our anger at our pagan culture, we can withdraw and retreat. And what the word of God says is this, a, a righteous anger, a holy anger at the, the, the false worship in the world around us should cause us not to retreat, but to run towards them, to be burdened by what we see because the world is broken by sin. I think Paul reflects for us the heart of God himself when he looks at sin in the world. In fact, I love this quote, A.W. Tozer once said this, that God hates iniquity or sin as a mother hates the diphtheria or polio that would destroy the life of her child. God looks at what he created and he sees the devastating nature of sin and how it, like a disease, is eating humanity alive. And his heart breaks. And Paul Paul felt a desperate concern for the spiritual need before his eyes. You know, as believers, our hearts should ache, our eyes should blur at what we see around us in the world. And what should devastate us most is that there is a world of people around us who are broken by sin, who do not have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Souls that will one day face the true and living God and who are in the moment denying the one God and giving allegiance to false gods. And we need to allow this to burden us so that it makes us what it made Paul, listen, eager for evangelism. You have to see the connection here. Paul is irritated to the point where he realizes, church, he has to do something about it and he can do something about it. He is so moved by what he sees. Verse 17 says that so he, so is a, the reason, look, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. That's always his starting place. He goes to the people who believe in the authority of God's word. But I want you to see something different happening here right now. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I mean, picture the scene. Paul is moving not just into the synagogues to share Christ. Now he's getting out into the marketplace. And if you just consider the historical account, the idols are lying the streets. They're all around him. And here he is doing street evangelism in the middle of the false worship that is pervasive in this culture. He is standing up and declaring the one true God alone who is worthy of worship and praise. Paul has such courage, doesn't he, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's powerful. 
Like Jeremiah 20 verse nine, an urge to speak came burning like a fire and the apostle Paul could not hold it in. He could not be indifferent or detached when he saw what he saw. He simply begins dialoguing, I love this, with anybody who's willing to talk. You know, sometimes in our efforts to reach people, we're, we're too busy trying to figure out, well, I wonder who I could talk to. Maybe that person or maybe that person. Paul's just like, listen, every day I'm gonna go out and whoever's willing to stand there and talk with me, I'm willing to converse with. And I do like the fact that it says every day, don't you? It just reminds us, this is constantly on his heart and mind. Oh, how we need that same spirit, that same burning eagerness to evangelize. And as he stood there sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 18 tells us that there were some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also wanted to discuss with him. Uh, they're, they're standing around. By the way, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're the intellectual elite. They represent the two major worldviews of the day in Athens. And they hear what Paul is preaching and they see two things. One, he's a preacher of foreign divinities. He's bringing new gods that we're not familiar with. The second thing is this, they realize that this, this divinity is Jesus and he's preaching this thing called the resurrection. They're confused by all of this and somewhat aggravated and so they wanna dig in a little bit more but before we get there, let me just describe the worldviews of these individuals. It's gonna be helpful for understanding how Paul approaches them. They represented the two competing philosophies of the day. The Epicureans believed that everything happened by chance. Everything was random chance and ultimately they believed that death was the end. There was utter extinction or annihilation. There was no such thing as the afterlife. You know, you lived your life here and now and once you died, poof, there's just nothing. They believed that there were gods, lowercase g, and many of them, but those gods really had nothing to do with the world. You know, this agnostic, really it's a pluralistic agnosticism. Multiple gods, lots, hundreds of gods, but they're really detached from the world. They're not involved. There is no relational aspect to the divine and the human. They believed that the chief end of man was pleasure. Right, think about that. I mean, this life is all there is. There's nothing else to it, so if it feels good, do it. In the end, who cares? That was their mentality. That was their philosophy of life. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheistic, which simply means this, they believed that everything is God, and that whatever happened to them was their destiny. Their perspective was more of a fatalistic resignation. They believed that everything was just gonna happen the way it was always meant to and you couldn't do anything about it and so there was this apathetic approach to life, a really detached approach to life. And Paul looks at both the Stoics and the Epicureans and he realizes two important things. First, that they're both utterly empty and devoid of truth. And the second thing he realizes that they both reflect, listen, a genuine desire to know and believe something. And I think that's really accurate when we consider our world, isn't there? I mean, we can look at our world and, and we can see aspects of the Epicureans and aspects of the Stoics in our very culture. We know people who hold the similar worldviews or, or things similar to those that are slightly nuanced. There is a plethora of worldviews and what we need to understand is what Paul understood. All of what the world is holding to is utterly, in a sense, listen, empty, but it is pointing to the greater reality that we need to understand. They are seeking 
looking for something. They want to believe in something. They want to understand truth if they can. So Paul moves in this really, really helpful, kind of linear way of thinking. I wanna just walk it through real quickly again. Listen, he moves from this irritation at the idolatry in the world. He sees the world and he doesn't, he doesn't wanna assimilate into it, he wants to reach it. He is irritated and it burdens his heart for the lost. There is a grieving in his soul which makes him therefore eager to do something, to take the gospel and share Christ with those who desperately need it. And look at what he gets for it. Don't you love this? This seems to be just par for the course for the Apostle Paul, he gets mocked and made fun of. I mean, look at what they call him in verse 18. What did this babbler wish to say? This is a term of derision, and this is mockery. This is public humiliation. The word literally means to be a seed picker. In other words, he's like this little bird, this little bird who likes to go peck around and pick up little worthless, petty little seeds. If you follow the flow of the word as it's used in, in literature, it actually has the sense of being a scavenger. You know what they're saying about Paul? They're saying this guy is this petty scavenger who goes around in the marketplace and he hears all these different ideas and then he just kind of grabs them all together and he wants to talk about them like he understands them, but he has no clue what he's talking about. He's ignorant. Paul's a buffoon. This guy's babbling about what he does not understand. Now that's gonna be important. There's so much irony laced in this text. They claim that Paul is the ignorant one. I want you to follow that line of thinking. Others are looking at him preaching this foreign, these foreign divinities. One thing we can be clear on is he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they take him. They take him to this place called the Areopagus and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. And we get a sense of what this culture was like. You see all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. They always wanted to grab onto the latest intellectual fads. These were the academic elite and, and they just loved to bat around ideas but it ultimately led them nowhere. Paul is willing to be mocked. Don't you love that about Paul? He's willing to be mocked, willing to be beaten, doesn't matter. Evangelist Rico Tice says in his book, Honest Evangelism, he says you have to risk the hostility to discover the hunger. That's really, really helpful. You have to risk the hostility of people to discover the hunger that really is there. And that's exactly what we see unfolding in Paul's ministry here. You see, he risks being ridiculed and mocked, but what's really being unearthed in these people is that there is a deep hunger to hear more of what he has to say. They're intrigued, there's a, a curiosity, there's a sense of which maybe there's, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we at least better hear him out. Now, this is cloaked kind of in a, a legal kind of setting. I want you to see that. The Areopagus was a place they brought people to sit before a council so that they could make legal judgments about what they were saying. You see, Paul is preaching foreign divinities. Now this could go against the, the legal requirements in Athens, and so Paul could actually be punished for this if they do not determine that what he's saying fits in with their worldview. And so part of what they're doing is bringing him before a council of these intellectual elite who can make a judgment to see whether or not what this guy says should be embraced. But don't miss that there is a real hunger Yes, they're looking for official authorization. 
But they're hungry to hear what he has to say, and I just, I love this because I just want you to see in all of this, listen, Paul is the one who generated this opportunity, didn't he? Paul is the one who took the step of faith. Paul is the one who had the courage, listen, empowered by the Spirit of God and all by the grace of God. Paul steps out in faith and he begins to talk with people and all of this leads to this massive opportunity to stand before the intellectual elite and to help them understand the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, church, we don't build bridges by passively sitting around silently, but by actively engaging in community. I just want to encourage you. We need to be people who are actively, strategically, you know, you say, what do I do? Take that invite that we gave you. Go grab a stack of those invites and go start talking to people about Jesus. That, that's a, a helpful way to, you know, you got that passion to share Christ with somebody. You know you need to get involved with people. Grab one of those invites at the very least. That's a, a helpful tool we want to put in your hands so that you can start building some bridges to the people around you so that they too might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you need to do this. You want to build bridges? I must confront the culture. I must confront the culture. You know, we live in a day and age that praises tolerance above all, and tolerance to most seems to mean acceptance of everything. And I think Paul models for us what it means to graciously confront the culture in such a helpful way. And if you think of that analogy of building the bridge, this is the preliminary phase. You know, you've surveyed the land. Now you're preparing the land. So you're getting the bulldozer out and you're beginning to clear the way. You're beginning to lay the foundation. Some people call this pre-evangelism. You're getting somebody ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul does that by subtly, uh, but very strategically confronting the culture. Look what he does at verse 22 and 23. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul stands, you can imagine the setting. He's now on a, on a kind of hilly, hilly area. The, the Areopagus is, is a, a, a council of individuals there sitting in a semicircle. He stands and he greets them in a very, very formal way. This is in one sense a very formal proceeding. It's not just a social banter and discussion. This has great weight. They are making an objective determination about whether or not these religious convictions will be tolerated in this place. And one of the things I'm so encouraged by when I look at the Apostle Paul is that he stands with such courage and boldness, doesn't he? He is unwavering when he gets an opportunity to preach the gospel. And and I think this is is heightened, and it should be in our hearts and minds, because of what's happened before this. Do you notice that when Paul is mocked and made fun of, he doesn't justify himself or defend himself. He doesn't run and say, how dare you? How many of us respond like that? How dare you treat me like that? I mean, I'm not gonna tell you anything now. (laughs) Show you. He's not easily offended. And I think this should speak volumes to us because so often we have such thin skin when people attack us, don't we? He just models for us what Jesus models for us. Look, we have to be thick-skinned when it comes to preaching the gospel. People aren't always gonna like us and thank us for bringing them the saving news of Jesus Christ. In fact, many people will spit on us and will make fun of us and maybe even try to hurt us. 
Why? Why can Paul do this? Why is he, why does he have such thick skin? I think, for one, he has this kind of confidence because as philosophers often like to say, he has the unique advantage of having truth on his side. <laughs> he knows he's standing on the truth. He knows what they're standing on is sinking sand. He knows that what he believes is the absolute truth and what confidence that should give us when we stand before people in this world who have different worldviews and different gods that they worship. We know that God has delivered to us the truth of all that he is. We stand on the solid rock. And that needs to encourage our hearts and give us great confidence. And so Paul's not this self-conscious, timid, defensive, ranting little man. He's calm, he's cool, he's collected. He is confident in the truth and he's trusting in the power of God. And I think as we look at the way Paul handles himself, we can learn from his approach. Three things I just wanna draw out from his approach and how he confronts the culture. If you wanna do this effectively, just gonna lock this away. First is this, observe. Observe, it's right there in verse 23. He says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. That's so, so winsome of Paul. You see, he is intentionally pointing out to these intellectual elites, these philosophers, that he's actually taking the time, listen, to walk around the city, to look carefully at his surroundings and at what they value, what they appreciate. Can you just see the wisdom in that? He's not running in, making assumptions and you know, ignorant about what they're doing and how they're living and how they're worshiping. He has researched, he's observed, he's soaked it all in. You know, sometimes when you walk into a new city, it's easy to kind of look around and observe and soak in what's really relatively new, right? And we can be bad at this, we can kind of just become used, to, we got our blinders on, we're just so used to our surroundings, we're not really digging in very intentionally, but this is a good reminder that we need to be constantly, people, if we're gonna be effective, listen, we need to be effective observers. And I, I mean, I remember the, the, the staggering reality of, of walking through the city, or the, the streets of Nepal, and walking through Nepal where, listen, idol worship is commonplace, it reminds me, like every time I think back there, I, I feels like I'm transported into the book of Acts. Everywhere you walk, there's idols to gods everywhere. You know, Predominantly Hindu faith with some Buddhism. There's communal idols uh, that they have in the center of communities that they all worship at certain points of the day. Every home has an idol. You walk along in the marketplace, they're trying to sell you all kinds of you know, incense and different trinkets for your worship of your, your idols. So it's easy to identify idols in places like that, isn't it? Well, I think that we need to become astute observers of idols in our culture. And yes, it looks different. Yes, it's not so overt. But I want you to think for a minute. When you, if you've ever been to Times Square in New York, tell me you can't see the idolatry all around you. I mean, it's amazing. I walk through the streets of Times Square and the idols are screaming at you. There's billboards and signs, advertisements everywhere and you can't get away from the reality that the idols of the culture there that seep clearly into here is money and power and possessions and sex. I mean, you name it. It's evident if we're looking for it, if we're really seeing it. We need to observe Secondly, we need to understand. See, verse 23 actually, in one sense, comes before verse 22. You see, as, as he walked and observed, that, then he can say this, 
men of Athens, in verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a really important statement that he makes. You see, he's understanding their culture. And he notes that they're very religious. I mean, it's so abundantly clear. I love this because, listen, Paul doesn't mock their culture. Do you notice that? He is respectful of it while at the same time willing to challenge and confront it. So many Christians, so many people lose their influence because they're quick to mock, to make fun of, or to disparage another culture instead of valuing and respecting a culture and the people in it. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but there's some wisdom here that we need to embrace and implement in our lives. Church, you don't build bridges by being combative. You build them by being compassionate. You don't build bridges with people by by being rude and disrespectful. You build them by being polite and respectful. And one of the greatest ways that we can show respect and compassion is to seek to understand what matters most to them. This is an incredibly loving and caring thing and Paul wants them to see that he is loving them. He's caring for them by sensing and seeing, perceiving what it is they value most in this life. You know, that layer, why do you have these gods? What are they really saying about what you love most? And then finally, listen, observe, understand, and expose. He doesn't leave it there. It's it's great to do those things, but ultimately we need to funnel it down into this one place. We need to be able to expose what these things are telling us about the individuals we want to minister to. And what we're exposing is simply put this, what they're truly seeking. And I love that Paul goes after here. He's just so intentional. He says that as he walked about, he saw an altar for an unknown God. That means this, listen, that in their worldview, they had gods for everything. They were so careful to make sure that they they didn't leave a God out, that they even built a temple and had an altar for an unknown God just in case they offended him by forgetting about him. That's the implication here. They're like, oh, we don't want him to get angry with us. Let's... We don't know who he is, but let's just assume that there's a God out there that we don't know and let's build him something as well. You see the ignorance that's gonna be exposed here? Paul looks at this and he's still so gracious. I want you to see that. He's so gracious in how he's confronting them, but he's drawing out, he's revealing, he's exposing the problem. You see, he's saying beneath all of this idol worship is the belief that there is a God out there who you do not know, but you must know. You know, biblically speaking, we talk about this a lot in this church, and I don't think we can talk about it enough, but biblically speaking, the problem of every human being at the core of the heart is a worship disorder. God has created every one of us to worship someone or something, and everybody does. And that is, by the way, you gotta hear this, that is what we are confronting in the culture. That's what we're trying to draw out and expose. What are you worshiping? And then we're trying to contrast that with what they should be worshiping, with what that is pointing them towards, right? This is inadequate, this is insufficient. That thing, that person, your family, your spouse, that substance, that pleasure, right? Whatever it is, that is an idol in your life. An idol, if you want just a simple definition, an idol is something that we value in our life as much as or more than God. And that is the thing that we will worship. 
And ultimately what God is revealing, listen, if that's, all of us have these, we always have to be looking at our hearts and assessing where we're at and what we're valuing more than we're valuing God. Every one of us has this problem, but what you need to see is this, God is trying to communicate to us through this constant struggle, what you're really seeking is me. What you really were meant to worship is me. And so here's Paul, and he's saying, Guys, I'm not the ignorant one. (laughs) There's a God out there that you don't know about and I wanna tell you all about him. And so he confronts the culture and that leads to this. Listen, as you're building your bridge, craft the narrative. Craft the narrative, tell the story. And that building the bridge analogy, listen, this is the actual building phase. We're under construction now. We're starting to put the pillars up. Verses 24 and 25, look at them with me. It says, the God, just back up. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I just want you to notice how Paul is handling himself and how he's approaching these individuals. Did you notice here that as Paul is evangelizing these individuals, he's not quoting the Bible directly? Did you catch that? Did you realize this is one of the first times we see this in the book of Acts? The the reason is because every time beforehand he's evangelizing, he's been typically evangelizing to Jews or God-fearers, which means he's been sharing Christ with people who hold to the authority of the word of God. They would have embraced the Jewish scriptures, and so he starts with the common ground. He says, look, you believe the scriptures, and let's go back there, and let me show you how what I'm saying actually is in line, and actually is what these scriptures are trying to tell you. But here, here's what's so fascinating. Here he's speaking to people who are completely pagan. They know nothing of the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, they're hearing him preach foreign divinities and it's the first time they've ever heard this in their life. So Paul's not going, well, if you just open your Bible to page uh, 450, I'll show you what the Torah says. He doesn't do that. Because the Bible isn't their authority. And so what he does is really important, really helpful. To people who do not hold to the authority and and probably more specifically, to people who don't know the Bible, never even heard the Bible, don't even understand the Bible, he approaches them in a very different way. Now, here's what I wanna say as a caveat. What he says is completely biblical, amen? I mean, it's entirely scriptural. In fact, even though he's not quoting verses, well, we can trace the language he uses to some very specific scripture verses in the Old Testament. It is thoroughly and completely biblical. And so Paul begins to tell the story, the biblical story of this God. And by the way, he is starting on common ground. They believed in a deity. They believed in at least deities. And so he begins there. He uses this idea of the unknown God to tell them of the God who must be known and it's, it's vital, listen, that when we're talking to people who have no bearing about God or about the authority of the Bible, I really believe it's vital that we begin by establishing the reality of God. We have to show people that this, there is a God who actually exists 
Here's why, because people will not realize the seriousness of their sin and they will not, listen, know their need for a savior until they understand who it is they have sinned against. And his comments about God are calculated to not only show the futility of idolatry, but also to demonstrate that God is supreme Lord of creation and therefore he is worthy of our allegiance. You'll notice where he starts. The fundamental truth about God is that he is the creator. I want you to see that he's showing them the singularity of God and the supremacy of God. He is making clear that though they believe in a plurality of gods, there really ultimately is only one God who is God of gods. He is the supreme creator of the universe. He holds all authority and power. He is the one to whom everything is subjected. He is, as Paul says, right from the scriptures, the God who made the world and everything in it. There is nothing in this universe that has not been made by this creator God. And this is the God, by the way, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by human hands. In fact, we know the scriptures scoff at that idea. Can you imagine Paul running through the scriptures in his mind, right? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, what he's doing now as he tells the story of this God is he is continuing to reveal and confront the idolatry of this culture, their misunderstandings about the divine and specifically their misunderstandings about the God of this universe, the one that they are ultimately accountable to. Idolatry is a a funny thing when you think of it in the physical sense. Spiritually, it's, it's the same, but in the physical sense, I mean, I walked into a restaurant the other day where there was a, a Buddha statue on the ground, an idol of Buddha on the ground, and, and, and they were putting a bowl of rice in front of it. And this is common practice, especially in, in, in uh, the, the world of idolatry and other places around the world where their idols are actually, they, they see it as their responsibility to care for their gods. They have to feed their gods. They have to clothe their gods. They have to put makeup or you know, paint their gods. They, ha- they are the ones who are responsible for their gods. And can you see how Paul is very graciously but very straightforwardly going after that idea to show the foolishness of it? To think that we could give God, us created beings, that we could give God and provide for God what he doesn't or what he needs as if God needed anything? Are you kidding me? He's the one who gives everything to humanity, life and breath, everything in this world owes its existence to God. Right now, at this moment, listen, the reason you are breathing, the reason your heart is beating, the reason you were able to have food in your stomach today was because God allowed it. How dare we think that we can bring anything to God that he needs? See, idolatry flips the roles around. Do you see that? We are dependent upon God. He is not dependent upon us. And you need to see this, that Paul is is challenging their entire theology. 
The Stoics were pantheists and the Epicureans were agnostics. Paul's declaration denied the premise of both of these groups. He's cutting them out of the legs. He's showing them the foolishness of their thinking and the way that they're living and treating these gods. I mean, what he says directly attacks the Epicureans' belief that God was absent and the Stoics' belief that he was in everything. As the giver of life, God is actively here, but he is not contained by creation. He is, at the same time, within but, with, but outside, sustaining all of the universe. Paul does something really brilliant here. He begins still at a place of contact. This is helpful in our, in our strategy for meeting people where they're at and evangelizing the people. Paul, there's great evidence to show that Paul in this discussion, as much as he's confronting, listen to what he's doing first. He's picking and choosing very specific areas of theology where there's actually common ground at the beginning. So he's starting in a place of agreement. This is important for our engaging with people. Starting in a place, hey, we, we agree with this. We all at least agree that there's gods, right? There is a divine being. We all agree, let me give you some examples for, for us, that there is order in the universe. We all agree that there is morality in the universe. You see how we do this? We create common ground, and then what we do is we contradict it. We show how the way they view it doesn't make sense, and the way the Bible describes it actually makes perfect sense. So, so you think about that with order. Think about this with order, okay? Our universe, scientists and mathematicians will tell you through and through that everything is built on order and structure, right? Mathematical principles undergird the fabric of this entire universe. The problem is that they believe that order came from random chaos. It doesn't make sense. We believe in a God who is at the very center, ordered, perfect. Morality Right? We, we talk about morality and how you know, most people you talk to believe in some sort of morality, but here's the problem. It, you know, that's great, we believe, we agree, now we need to con- contradict it, we need to, to challenge it, and what we often will come to people and say is this, listen, the problem is, is that if you don't believe in a supreme being who is moral, your morality actually has no basis. Doesn't make sense. It's founded upon nothing. It only makes sense when you view God, a creator, a higher being who has determined all of these things. Those are just really, really basic examples, but I just want you to see how Paul is operating and how we can so often be effective, find points of agreement, and then look to move in and challenge the way we see and understand. This is, by the way, it's about to get personal. The final great truth about God is that he is not only the creator and the life giver, but that he seeks us out. That he seeks us out. This is so, so strategic. You see, we cannot finish the bridge until we connect the hearer. That's your fourth point. We cannot finish the bridge until we connect the hearer. As we're telling the story, it's fine to tell the story, to give the truth, but one of the things that we need to get really, really good at is making sure we're bringing people into the story, making sure that they understand that they have a part in this story. Verse 26 says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should, look at this, seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Paul tells them that there is a single origin for all humanity. That one God created us all. And practically what Paul is saying is that they were not living in Athens as a result of some kind of cosmic accident. 
Rather, God had structured their lives in order to attract them to him. God determined not only the existence of human beings, but also the conditions of their existence. He is the Lord of humanity, and he is the Lord of history. Far from being removed, listen, from his creation and distant, he is intimately involved and specifically working in the life of his creation. This is so radically different from their philosophies of life and this brings, this is what we need to get good at. We need to move it from the theoretical realm into the personal realm because now Paul can move to show them this God cares deeply about you. He loves you, he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. That's why you were created in the first place. And every person was created the same. That's why he makes this link all the way back to Adam. We know he's talking about Adam, although he doesn't mention it. His point is this, don't you understand? All of humanity was created not by a multitude of gods, but by one God. He is the ruler of all humanity, and all humanity owes their allegiance to him. They were created, we were created to know him. Verse 27, that's so powerful that they should seek him. There's a a sense here, listen, that God has allotted people to live where they are and, and, and to go their own way, that they should seek him in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. But there is this sense in the in the in the grammar in the original where the, the implication is this: people are groping around in the darkness unable, they're so close, you know, they're right there. If you just reach out, you could grab a hold of the truth, but the problem is, listen, listen, in their ignorance and in their blindness, they're unable to do so. And so here's what they're doing, this is what he's telling them, you're grabbing at whatever you can that resembles God or the God that you think exists and and you're trying to hold on to that as if it's God and you're so close, but you're just missing it. You know how often sit with people, I think we need to, to make this really personal. We're, I'll often meet with people who are interested in, in talking about the gospel or wrestling through the realities and oftentimes I'll find myself in conversations with people, you know, sitting face to face, having a coffee and, and they're just wrestling with the truth of the gospel and one of the things I love to do with people because I believe it's so biblical and it's so true, in those moments, you know, I, I like to look at people and say, do you, do you know I realize that right now, this, this meeting that we're having right now, why, the things that we're talking about the reason that brought you here in the first place, you know, all the circumstances in your life, everything that providentially brought you to the place to start seeking and asking questions and to grope around, I don't use that language, but if you know, think about where you are, none of that is an accident. Do you know I believe that with all my heart that God is working right now in your life and he wants you to know him. It's so important, listen, it's so important that people understand the personal nature of a relationship with God. And I believe that, that providentially God works like that to bring people to the exact, you believe that? To the exact spot, to sit across the table and ask questions that they've never thought about before and to process things that they've never even considered because at that moment, God is seeking after them. They have been longing for what he has to offer and God is showing how much he cares for them by bringing them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to know in verse, look, he says, yet and it is actually not far from each one of us. That's, that's so close, you're so close, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's saying, he's saying, don't you get it? 
He's like, we are so dependent upon God. None of us could be alive right now without God. God is so close to every single one of us. It is evidence of his grace and his desire to be known. And then he quotes one of their own poets who said, for we indeed are his offspring. That quote was specifically about Zeus, but they saw Zeus as a, as a supreme kind of God and saw their allegiance to him because of that. And he says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. And I just want you to see how Paul is driving this in. He is pulling them close. He's saying we're made to know him. You know, he quotes one of their own prophets, I believe, as a, a sign of respect, but to show them how all of humanity is really seeking the same thing. Even those who don't know God, ultimately, they're seeking for the same thing, and they're understanding, in some sense, at some level, that they owe the allegiance to God. And Paul's point was that, as creatures of intrinsic dignity, having been created by God, men ought to refrain from false worship, thrust it aside, and since we are made in the image of God, it is insulting to God and it is degrading to us to make and worship anyone or anything else. Do you wanna know why idolatry was forbidden in the Old Testament? Do you wanna know why the Israelites weren't even ever to try and attempt to make an image out of the God that they worshiped? The problem with idolatry is this, that you cannot make with human hands anything that comes remotely close to the God of the universe. You can't, anything you make is gonna be so inadequate. It is gonna be so inefficient. It is gonna be, listen, it is an insult to God to try and make something that reflects him. That, that, that puts you in the place of thinking you actually know all that God is. Like how dare we? How dare we insult God like that? He pulls them in, and he's, he's, he's speaking to their culture, isn't he? He's speaking right to them. He's connecting them into the story. And I'm convinced of this. We, we, we must not simply stay in the realm of the mind when we're speaking to people about the truth of the gospel. We must move to engage the heart. We have to move to engage people's heart. It's not enough to just do a data dump and give them the content of the gospel. Listen, we must be people who press the gospel into the heart of individuals. We need to move from meaning, right? It's, it's fine to give meaning, but we can't stay there. We need to move to significance. We need to tell people not only what is true, we need to show people why it matters for them. And then, as Paul is about to do, listen, we need to tell them what they can do about it. And that's the last aspect of building the bridge. Construction is done, we call the heart. We call the heart, I like to think of this and that analogy as the testing phase. Who's gonna be the first one to grab their car and drive across this bridge? It says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. There was a time when God let all of the nations do their own thing, worship their own gods. That didn't mean that they weren't culpable, they absolutely were. But now he commands all people everywhere to, uh, to repent. Now is the time where God is sending people out. He's sending messengers out. He's sending you and me out into the world to tell people that their ignorance about who God is has come to an end. They can know the true and living God through Jesus Christ. And the way to do that begins right here 
with repentance. Repentance means to turn and go the opposite way. To turn away from something, to turn away from sin, and here specifically it's the sin of idolatry, to move away from the things that we value more than God and we love more than God and we worship more than God and to walk toward the true and living God and to value and to treasure and to worship him more than anything. He says he's calling people everywhere to repent. And here's why, you want extra motivation? This is so powerful, you have to see this, listen. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You have to see the gravity of what he's saying here. And you know, Paul, Paul is not afraid to deal with the hard issues. Do you believe that? <laughs> He looks at these people and, and, and listen, with pa- compassion, I believe, maybe with tears in his eyes, and he says to them, don't you understand, you need to repent. You have to turn from your idolatry. Don't you know that the God of this universe, the one who is the cr- supreme creator of all things, he has fixed a day. Listen, it is on the divine calendar. It is there. It will not be changed, it cannot be modified, adjusted, or tweaked, and on that day, every single human being will stand before Jesus Christ as the great judge, and he will judge in righteousness. That means this, he will reveal everything, and he will judge perfectly and righteously. Listen, and if you stand before King Jesus, the great judge, apart from salvation in him, you stand naked and exposed and guilty. That is devastating. And Paul's saying, Paul's saying, don't you realize there is a way out of this predicament? There is hope. You don't have to face the judge as the condemned criminal. You can face the judge as the one who has been clean and cleansed, the one whose guilt has been taken from him and placed on another. He's appointed a man. Isn't that interesting that he says that to them? You know, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> right, think about that. I mean, once you die, it's all good. Like, you know, it's nothingness. There's no real point to life in one sense. And after death, who cares? But what's really interesting here is that he emphasizes the fact that there is a man who will judge. You know, a, a man can judge other men, but no man can judge all men unless God proves him to be the righteous judge. And that's the essence here of what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know, God has proved that there is one who is actually suitable to be the judge. There is one who will be the righteous judge, and God has proved that in that he died. Listen, he died dealing with death's penalty. He died dealing with death's sting, and he rose demonstrating that he was victorious and righteous in himself. He alone can be the righteous judge. Well, they hear the resurrection and they don't like this at all. They start mocking, some of them mock. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. There's some intrigue produced by this. And the beauty is this, I love this. Some are saved. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. They believed with all of their heart and they were saved. You know, that's what's required for salvation. You know, the resurrection is not an unimportant and trivial doctrine, and not, not an unimportant aspect of our theology. In fact, I would argue to you today that the resurrection is perhaps the most important truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible tells us this. Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus is utterly worthless. It's worthless. It's, yeah, okay, it's a great example. Yeah, yeah, it's a picture of somebody who lovingly would die for somebody else, but at the end of the day, it has no eternal value. It is utterly worthless, and therefore our faith would be in vain. Listen, but because of the resurrection, listen, death is defeated. It is utterly destroyed. Because of the resurrection, listen, we can have life because Jesus Christ has proved that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is king over death, he is king over sin, and all those who embrace him as Lord will one day receive the full and final resurrection from the dead. That's our hope. But in the meantime, we were spiritually raised with him. We were spiritually brought to life with him. So we march out into this world, listen, and the bridges we're building are to communicate to people that they don't have to die in their sin and face the judge of the universe, but instead, listen, that they can bow the knee to King Jesus and they can find life from the dead right now. Right now. What a worthwhile way to spend our time and energy declaring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, we pray that you would burden us with an ever-increasing passion and desire for this lost and broken world, for the souls in this world, Lord, who don't know you, who are worshiping false gods. Lord, I pray for those in this room who, Lord, have yet to bow the knee to King Jesus. Lord, would they see, even in this moment, the compassion of God towards them? Would they see the mercy and the love of God calling them out of ignorance in this moment? to believe and embrace the truth? Would they see, Lord, and would they actively engage their heart even now to place their faith in King Jesus? God, I pray that there would be spiritual rebirth taking place even now, today, and God, I pray that you would see fit to use us as people passionate for the glory of your name to bring many to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they too can have life, life from the dead, freedom from sin, life in the fullest. We pray this, Lord, do this. We pray for the glory of your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.